Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7, verse 21 through 23. This is our third message on these three verses. And we could probably spend the rest of the month, Wednesday nights, talking about it. There's so much here to say because of the content of what Jesus says. Jesus said in verse 21, Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name, and in thy name have, have cast out devils, and in thy name done many wonderful works? And then will I profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. That has to be the most awful thing a human being who had a chance to live in this world and didn't get saved. The worst thing you could ever, ever hear. Because it's a separation for eternity. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. Now, so far, we finished last week with verse 23, we were talking about 23, where it says, Then will I profess unto them, I never knew you. Now, when he talks about knowing, as one writer said, to say, I have never known you, is another way of saying, you have never known me. Because the word know, while technically, grammatically, it has to do with recognition or Seeing somebody, I know this or I know that, or adding two and two, I know that answer. The word know was intended here to be more of a relational word, something that has to do with relationship. The word know was used in the Bible. When, when a man married a woman, Abraham married Sarah, as I said, he knew her and she conceived. And that's more than just recognizing who she is, but it had to do with a relationship that he had with her from which, you know, this family way started, but this is the way we're supposed to see the word no. When Jesus said, I never knew you, he is saying, uh, as the Greek word is made up of, of two words, I understand it, and it means ever, not ever. I have never at any time known you. We have never had a personal connection. You knew it's like you would say, well, I know who you are. I recognize you. I followed you through the streets in Luke 13, he says, and I've heard your sermons. We saw you on the hillside divide the loaves and the fishes. We saw people get healed. We were there, Lord. We watched this. We, we went everywhere you went. We gathered in the great crowds and, and watched, and we stood in awe, and we were astonished, and, and we were so blessed by everything that you did. And he said, I never knew you. See, I said early when we started how, how deep these three verses go when to a thinking person. Because, you know, in the Bible, when he says, I never knew you, you he said that several times. How about the five foolish virgins? I mean, they were in the right crowd. There was 10 of them. Five of them were foolish, Jesus said. They had oil. They had lamps. They were looking for the Lord's return, and they were virgins. And yet, because of the oil thing, not having enough oil, and perhaps in all of that, there is a way of recognizing that you did what others did, and you determined you don't need all of that, and don't have to do that or go that far or pay that kind of price. Look, this is okay. And they missed it. And he told them, he said, I never knew you. That's a thinking man's verse. I never, not at any time, ever knew you. Now, God knows who everybody is. You know that. God knows all things. He knows the hairs of the head of the saints as well as the sinner. He knows how many breaths you take and how many molecules are in your breath and so forth. But there are people that he knows because they relate to him. And they relate to him because he causes them to come to them. Now, you've heard this message often. It's a verse describing, knowing is a verse describing a relationship that his people have with him out of which they come to know him, respect him, yield to him, and follow him. Turn to John chapter 10 for just a moment. Jesus, this is who it says that he knows. John chapter 10 and verse 14, Jesus said about his people as sheep, I am the good shepherd and know my sheep. 
Now, would you agree with me that whoever these were in Matthew 7 were not his sheep because he didn't know them? But you would agree with me that God knows his sheep. They can't know him because they just learned about him and got convicted and everything. God has to give you that. You can't just know the Lord. I mean, even Jeremiah, he canst thou by searching find out God? No. God has to open, reveal himself to you. And then in that way, the invitation is open. You can know him. Otherwise, we can only know about him. We can go to church and learn what he did, learn where he did it and who followed him and talk about the impact of the Bible and the world and Christianity all over the world. But that never means that you know him. It simply means you've learned a lot about him. But to know him becomes very personal. As I said, know is a relational word. It has to do with what you do with what you know. The knowledge that you have of God when you really know him has a great effect on what you do. It's a knowledge that, that affects your, your walk and your ways. He says this is the way walking in it, and you just know to do that. And not only do you know to do that, it's something you really want to do because you just want to do it. That's what it means to know the Lord. And he says, I know my sheep, verse 14. Again, he says, I know my sheep and have known of mine. And then verse 27, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. How else could we say we are ever led by the Lord? Are you with me? You could not describe the fact that you are being led by the Lord unless you are following what he has said. You have heard his voice. Now, you say, I've never heard an audible voice. He's not saying it like that. Not to us. Not every one of his sheep have ever heard an audible voice and knew to do what that said. As you read the word, you hear something on the inside of you. Just like when the Holy Spirit comes, it says, in your innermost being shall flow. Well, that's something from the inside that affects the way you live outside. And it says in verse 27 again, he said, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. And what does he say in verse 28? I give unto them eternal life and they shall never perish. Neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. That's wonderful. That's wonderful. All because they know him and he knows them. Now, again, how does knowledge affect you? Remember this verse in 2 Timothy, you probably do when I start quoting. 2 Timothy chapter 2, 19, in a great house, there are not only things that you need to get rid of, but also some good things. And then the verse says, if a man therefore will purge himself from these. Remember that? All right, now, the verse prior to that, the verse right before that, when it says, if a man will purge himself from these things, that's an action that I must take. Nobody will do this for me. I must do it. In verse 19, nevertheless, the foundation of God standeth sure, having this seal. The Lord knoweth them that are his. Now, God not only knows you, but he secures you if you're his. Now, he said that in John 10. The Lord knoweth them that are his, and let everyone that names the name of Christ depart from iniquities. Now, that's the big stumbling block, the big barrier between God and man that God loathes and God would hate whatever iniquity means, that everyone that says, I'm a follower of Jesus, let him depart from iniquity. And then he says in the next verse about those he knows in a great house, vessels of gold and silver, wood, hay, and stubble. Verse 21, if a man therefore purge himself from these, he shall be a vessel for honor, sanctified, meet for the master's use, prepared unto every good work. In other words, here's a description in light of what we're talking about. In Matthew 7, 21 to 23, if a man is related to God, the man will do whatever he has to do to keep himself pleasing to God in light of what God shows him. If God said this is the way walking in it, God's sheep, God's saints, God's people will make that adjustment. That's the proof of that they know him. That's also the evidence that they're his. My sheep hear my voice, they what? They follow me. I know them. 
they know me, and that's the way it works. And there's one verse in the Old Testament in Nahum, back in the really clean pages of your Bible. Nahum chapter 1 and verse 7, it says, The Lord knoweth them that trust him. And again, trust is birthed out of relationship. You would not trust somebody you don't know. You would only trust somebody you do know. You could ask a kid to jump off of a, a rock and you would catch him. And if he doesn't know you, he won't, he won't jump because you're a stranger to him. But if, if it's your daddy and he's done it before, he'll do it every time because of trust. I wonder how many people are professing they're saved by a stranger. That they profess to know him, but in, as Titus 2 says, they profess to know him, but in works, they deny him. Now, again, in verse 23, those dreadful words, we'll break it in two parts. One, he says, depart from me. The word depart means depart. It means to go away from. Depart from me. Jesus is the one who says this. So Jesus is saying to these people who, for however long they've been religious and been church folks, they come to this point in which it's judgment day. You've had plenty of chances. You've heard the call. You've, heard, you've felt the feeling. You've been moved and motivated and convicted and all that. Now, I don't know if you responded or, or not, but if you have not, there comes a time, there comes a point that Jesus says, depart from me. There's also, you know, there's times that Bible says that God gave them over. Remember that? God, in Romans 1, God gave them over to a reprobate mind to do things that are wrong and never stops them from doing it again. It's over. Now, it kind of brings us back to that word iniquity because he ends that 23rd verse by saying, all ye workers of iniquity. Iniquity is a word describing what sin does. There are four major words in the Bible for sin. Let me just give you three of them. Transgression, sin, and iniquity. They all basically say the same thing. Anytime you miss the mark, uh, you go different than God, you do something wrong that you know you shouldn't do, to him that knoweth to do good and doeth it not, to him it is sin. Sin is sin. You can give it whatever name you want to, but sin is sin. But it seems like in the Bible, especially in the New Testament, with the word iniquity, that sometimes it's used in a specific way to point out something just a little bit different as to the character of the sin. See, the word sin has to do with an act. It's what you did. You sinned. Whereas iniquity seems to concentrate more on the character of the sin. As to, that is, what promoted this kind of sin? What is the cause of this kind of sin or this sin? And sin is a dreadful thing, as all of you should know. Sin is a person. Remember, sin lieth at the door. Remember Genesis 4, verse 7? If you do well, won't you be accepted? But if you do not well, sin lieth at the door. And its desire, his desire is for you, but you must rule him and conquer him and overcome him. Sin is what separates us from God, whether you're a church member or a preacher. He says, your sins and your iniquities have separated between you and your God that he will not hear. Again, just as no is a relational word, sin seems to be a relational word also. He that knows to do good, which is what God gives, and is unwilling to do it for whatever reason, and the church is full of this, the world is consumed by it. But we're trying to spare a few people from judgment to come when we have church, when we go to church to teach them, stay away from this, don't do this, if they'll listen. But iniquity, iniquity has to do with the character of a man's sin. It's the, it's the action. Sometimes it's translated lawlessness. The Greek word translated lawless is also translated iniquity. It's anomia. Simply means one without law. Now, here's the bad thing about iniquity and why it's used in so many places where, like here in Matthew 7, depart from me, all you who work or who are given over to do iniquity. Iniquity has to do with a person's unwillingness to do things God's way. They may do a form of what God said. They may do some of the things that God says, but there are points in which they say, I'm not going to do that, and begin to draw, draw back at it. 
See, anomia or lawlessness doesn't mean the absence of law. It doesn't mean you don't know what the, well, in this case, the word, we call it the law. It doesn't mean you don't know what it is, but it, it just simply means that the one who is unwilling to let the law or let the word rule their life. I'm telling you this tonight because it's so true. It's true as it's, it's epidemic that in the church, people have been taught, it seems, in the way things have changed in the last 40 years. Now, I've been a Christian that long, longer than that. And it seems like there's a shift in, the, in people's thinking in church that we begin to estimate ourselves in light of other people. Well, I'm not as bad as ever some. I don't do this. I don't do that. Well, I haven't done that. Well, you know, I go, I don't, at least I don't lie and cheat and steal. I don't drink that much. And we look at all the people out there that are and say, well, I'll tell you what, I ain't like that. But what it comes down to, God doesn't say be different from the world as a measure of whether you're right with me or not. God said, this is the way, walk ye in it. The Bible you hold is the word of God, which in John 12, verse 48 says, Jesus said, this is the word that will judge you in the end. That's what we teach. And to whom much is given, much is required. We got a narrower way because we've been taught longer. It's not easier than it was. And people in this hour, because of so many options and because of so much reasonable theology out there, well, that's unreasonable to live the Sermon on the Mount. Well, that's just, a, come on now. And there's this kind of intellectual, philosophical reasoning that has told people that, Look, you're not as bad as everybody. You'll be all right. God's bigger than life. And come on, he knows you're just human. He knows you can't do all of that. And so we start backing off. We don't see our need to do it God's way. The church we go to is good enough. People have choices. I believe there are denominational spirits. I believe there are categories of religious spirits that have inspired men to, to come up with different ways, as they call it, to the same God, which is, which is a farce. There's only one God. There's only one way. But people now have the option. Think about it down through the centuries, especially the last 200 years. Now we have the option of picking and choosing which one of those ways best suits us. And therefore, we hear some of these things like in the Sermon on the Mount, especially marriage things. Oh, that just drags people in the mud. And they, and they begin to realize that now, for me to believe it that way, to live it, to practice this that way, I'm going to get in trouble with half of my family, half the church, the community. I'm going to be viewed as deceived, being misled, brainwashed under, in a cult. See, your mind has already learned how to figure stuff out with reason and with intelligence. You begin to think, well, no, I can't do that. You look for somebody who is a leader in religion. Sir, do you think I have to do that? And they say, well, I, don't th I think God knows your heart, don't you? And, I, and not everybody is capable of living this, this way. God knows your heart. And so you get this flavor of man's religion mingled with a little scripture. You throw a little scripture in there to make it acceptable. And you throw a whole lot of philosophy of man's ideas and man's ways in there. It begins to appeal to man so that man no longer sees his need to do it that way, but just justify why you don't do it because, and then you make up a rule or you make up an idea. That's what iniquity does. It's the worst kind of a man's professing, professed relationship to God is an iniquitous, lawless one. I am ruled by what I think. I am ruled by what I see, not by what God says. I will read what God says, but I will evaluate that in light of what's current, what's popular, whatever the people say, and then that's what I will do. I am unwilling to do it God's way. I am unwilling to walk this way. I am unwilling. And the Bible calls it iniquity. Now, you can call it wherever you want to. Even the folks who say, well, I don't, I don't believe that. I would say, then, what do you believe? Tell me what you believe. Tell me exactly how you see it. Because it doesn't matter how you see it or I see it. It only matters about what he said. If you don't see that, then we're blind. 
And if we be blind followers of the blind, guess where we're going? There's no trumpet in a ditch. If we're going to fall in a ditch because we're being misled by some man-made so-called orthodox proper theology, but it's misleading us and keeping us from trusting God, talking us out of our faith. God doesn't heal today. The gifts of the Spirit are not for today, and I don't believe that's necessary. When people start talking that, that way, you're listening to a seducing spirit. And the goal of a seducing spirit is one, so that you will depart from what? Well, so you'll depart from being faithful. You'll always be religious. Some of the most faithless people in the world are very churchy people. But they won't believe what God says in his word. This is a, the iniquitous out. Well, that's your, that's your opinion. Well, that's your version of it. That's just the way you see it. That's your opinion. But that's not exactly the way it is. Turn to Luke 13. Luke 13, and I would say to them, that is the way it is. It doesn't mean that a person doesn't know the Lord to be iniquitous. In fact, no facts about it. It just simply means that he is unwilling. He is unwilling to live on God's terms. Now, let me tell you what that means. When you're unwilling to live on God's terms, it means you are faithless. When the Bible said the just shall live by faith, it means literally the just by his faithfulness shall live. It's that simple. We either are willing to take this at, as a way of life or we're willing to look around and see if there's any other way. That's where iniquity steps in. And that's when man gets turned and twisted and so on and so forth. Here's Luke's version of uh, Matthew 7. We read a while ago, verse 23. Then said one unto him, Lord, are there few that be saved? Have you ever thought like that? You read the Sermon on the Mount, if, let me throw an if out there. If the Sermon on the Mount is required for us to properly and in depth relate to the Lord, and so many people do their very best, not only not to hear it or study it, but are frightened to even think the idea that I have to live that way to please the Lord. Do you suppose the question ever pops in our minds, if that's required, then are there only a few that are going to be saved? Is that true, though? I mean, how would you answer that? Are there a few that be saved? Ask yourself the question, are there only a few that are faithful to the word? Because they heard Jesus speak, they said this. They heard him teaching. I can only imagine them looking around, looking at each other, and then finally saying what he said in verse 20, 23. He said, Lord, are there only a few that are going to be saved? The broadcast on the radio uh, whenever you heard it today, yesterday, I don't listen to it, but that preacher said there are millions being saved every day. Every day, pretty soon the world's going to be saved. And that'd be called ultimate reconciliation, which is a lie. But anyway, anyway, look at what Jesus said. And Jesus said unto them, verse 24, strive. Now the word means agonize. That's the same word we get wrestle from. Agonize to enter in at the straight gate, for many, I say unto you, will seek to enter in and shall not be able. Here comes the day when once the master of the house is risen up and hath shut to the door, and you begin to stand without and to knock at the door, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. And he shall answer and say unto you, I know not who you are. Then shall you begin to say, We have eaten and drank in thy presence, and you taught in our streets. But he shall say, I tell you, I know not whence or who you are. Depart from me, all ye that are workers or that are given to a life of iniquity. You're unwilling to do it my way. You have devised your own way. It's called man-made religion. You have devised that way to do it. It suits your lifestyle better. You like it better. 
and you're leaving out because you don't want to hear it. And he said, depart from me. I never, my people aren't like that, in other words. I made a big deal out of this word iniquity tonight because it is, it is a big deal. It's just a big deal. But perhaps religious church members in the world had developed a system of, of religion that uh, gives us something different than what God gave us. You suppose that's possible? Can it have a form of religion? Does the Bible ever speak of somebody having a form of godliness? A form of godliness means that it looks godly. If you go in there and said it, certainly sounds godly. I mean, you, you can even feel moved at times. People are friendly and nice, and the flowers are fresh, and, and it's a form of godliness. Do you hear what I'm saying? A form. Not a form of trashiness, but a form of how you would estimate is godly. But what do they do? They deny the power of a godly life because somebody has told you those things have passed away. That doesn't work like that today, and therefore you don't believe for that. You set your faith aside for those kind of things that glorify the Lord, and you just learn a system that has the appearance of godliness because there is a way that seems right, but it's a way of death. It's a way of death. But, Lord, we went to church. We did this. We served as deacons, elders. We, Lord, we, Lord, we, Lord, we, Lord, we. And he said, you know, I did not call you to, to devise up some noble and cheerful way to have church. I've called you to assemble before me. I'll even give you somebody to talk to you, to preach to you. I'll call them a gift. Apostles, prophet, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. What's their purpose? Information. To bring information. What's the information for? To knowledge. He that knoweth to do good. Knowing doesn't mean you're faithful. It just means you know what to be faithful to. Now you got a choice. Now you demonstrate to God where your heart is in all of this. When somebody says, you know what, I, I, I don't know if I'm willing to do it that way or not. This is the beginning of iniquity. You can do anything else you want to. You can go in any other direction you want to. But the only right way through life, folks, for any of us, me and you and whoever else, the only right way through life is Christ. Now, I know standing here tonight that none of us are perfect, that we wrestle with a lot of things and sometimes we do stumble. And there is often a fear of whether I can do this or not or what will happen if I do and what if it doesn't work. I know that. God knows that. But that never keeps us from gripping that plow. That's never an excuse to let go of because if you let go of it and look back, what does it say? We're not fit for the kingdom. So we have no other choice, in other words. Once we connected with the Lord, we placed our hands on that plow to live this, this life, there is no options. You see, that makes me, it kind of makes me scared. You know, the Bible says to work out your salvation with uh, fear and trembling. And if you're thinking about turning back, remember God is a consuming fire. You don't want to do that. So you just need to bear down and hang on and hold fast and plead and, and pray and wrestle and overcome because the end of this thing will be better than the beginning because religion today is full of deceitfulness. Deceitful preaching, deceitful styles, deceitful presentation, deceitful people. A church that's not seeking the things of God, they're seeking the things of man. Even their advertisements in the papers, look at us, look what we do. We've done this, we've grown this much. We got 2,000, we're adding 100 a week, and, and look, we got this, we got that. We can offer you this and offer you that. And hopefully at some point in there, we'll, we'll, we'll mention Jesus. And yet, in the, you read the book of Revelation about the church at Laodicea. They had that. They had all of that. They had so much of what everybody thinks you should have that they said among themselves, we have need of nothing. We have no reason to, to bear down and pray and seek after God and hold. We, we, we have everything. 
Remember what Jesus said to them? You are wretched. Remember that? You are wretched. You are poor. You are blind. And you're naked. Because that's what religion, especially when it turns you away from the way to a way. That's what iniquity is, and that's what it does. And God hates that because people are trusting in something that God did not give them. The Pharisees were classic examples of it. They said this is, you know, they had all these ways of doing things, but no, sir. Jesus said that won't get you into heaven. Turn to Luke 17 so I can go on. Luke chapter 17, when it comes down to works or what we do, the choices we're supposed to make in life, they are as simple, in Luke chapter 17, they are as simple as the Word of God. I mean, it's all we, all we have to do to please God is to take Him at His Word. Are you with me? To subscribe to what He says in such a way that you're willing to act like it's true. And that is our duty. Oh, I don't believe in that duty stuff. Well, let me read this. We read it the other day. I'm going to read it again in case you forgot it. Verse 10. So likewise you, when you have done all those things which were suggested. Oh, what would you all say? Commanded. Okay. When you have done all those things which were commanded you. Let me ask you a question. I want you to think. Then when God gets your attention and he gives you the word, is it like a commandment? In other words, is it what he wants you to do? It's not a suggestion, is it? The board doesn't meet over this. We're not going to meet and decide whether we ought to do that. One major denomination years ago, meeting out in uh, the West, they, uh, on, on the agenda for a vote was whether or not wives should have to submit to their husbands. Now, that's major nonsense, major ignorant nonsense. You don't have to vote on that, do you? Isn't that in the Bible? That, time out. We're going to show you something, make a point. Then why do people not want to do it? Why do women not want to do it? Men don't have a problem submitting to their wives, but <laughs> wives submitting to their husbands. Why then do women have such a problem with that? Obviously, it was on the agenda because of them. Men, was, men should like that if, if they do this right. But if they love their wives and they're respectful and honorable and loving with their wives, why wouldn't a wife want that? Why would you vote on it? Is it because in this age that's not where we are anymore, that we've gone from a, a mother at home to a mother in a CEO and working out there and telling men what to do and where to get off? that we're now offended when you say women shouldn't be preachers, that the Bible doesn't endorse women preachers, and they want to fight over that, that homosexuality is a perversion of nature and it's a sin worthy of death. People don't want to hear that. Why? Because the change is taking place. In your generation, you young people, we're almost afraid to say it anymore because of, oh, what people might say against you. Well, God will test us to see where, how far you'll go, but... We can't argue with this book. Vote on whether wives should submit to their husbands. They might as well vote on whether or not they should eat. I mean, this is the way God said to live. Why would you vote on that? Because I don't want to do that. That is demeaning to me. You tell me that a woman can't be a preacher. All denominations have women preachers. I don't doubt it. I don't doubt what they all have. And a lot of them don't. They don't submit to their husband. The, the idea of wearing a head covering is dreadful to most women, whether in charismatic meetings. Oh, I can't do that. Oh, I, I'm not cute in that thing, or whatever the problem is. There's something in the heart. You, do you all hear what I'm saying? Something has convinced you, no, 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 I don't see that. What do you see? Tell me what you see. I don't see that. I know you don't, but tell me what you see. And see, you don't even know what you see. You just don't want to do it because it's, what would people think if you did? Well, what would God think if you didn't? Nobody's going to make you do that. 
I don't have a little basket up here, them little hankies, and going to come around and hand them out. I don't do that. I'm just saying the Bible has a lot of things. Take divorce and remarriage. There's no subject that I know of other than Santa Claus. I can't think of any one subject that there's more of a passionate plea appealing to logic and reason and not the scripture than divorce and remarriage. Well, now don't you think, well, what if she and what if? You mean to tell me that if he and she, then, and they think that that makes it right if you do it. You know, divorce or remarriage. I tell people, I don't care what you do, what you think. What does the Bible say? And people don't hear me say that and say, oh, what a wonderful theology you have. They say, I'm not going to listen to that kind of stuff anymore. What will you listen to? What are you looking for? Do your ears ever itch? I don't mean you have to do like that. I mean, do they ever want to hear something else? See, that's what iniquity does to us. That's how it takes us away from a relationship to God where we acknowledge God and his word, but we don't want to do it that way. And Jesus said, you know, depart from me, you workers of iniquity. If you're going to do anything, listen to verse 10 again. So likewise, when you have done the things that were commanded you, say this, we are still unprofitable, what? Servants, we have only done that which was our duty to do. Does your Bible say that? Now, if I'm a Christian, I am duty-bound. I may have trouble with this at first because the way I was raised or the mindset I have. I may have a problem with healing because I was a doctor or I was sick all my life. But there comes a point that you've got to settle down and get that. And you do it. You live that way. It's, I'm required. It's not law, and you can call it legal if you want to, but I'm just going to quote Jesus. He said, when you have done all those things which are commanded you, Say this, we are still unprofitable servants. We don't get a reward for doing this because we did it. We'll be blessed and rewarded, but not because we thought of something to do. We've only done what he said, and that's our duty. I led 20,000 people to the Lord. You're supposed to. Your anointing was to enable you to do that. Get your picture off that little program of yours. Whatever he gives us to do, and he blesses it, let's give the glory to him. Amen. Amen. Finally, go back to chapter 7 of Matthew again, and we'll come to the closing remarks. Matthew 7 and verse 24. It's interesting that he begins with the word, therefore. I heard a man years ago say this. When you read in the Bible and you've come to a word that says, therefore, you need to find out what it's there for. In other words, when it says, therefore, it's like saying, now, in light of what I have said, whether from Matthew 5 and 6 and through this seventh chapter or the past three verses, therefore, here is the conclusion of what this whole thing is about. Whosoever hears these sayings of mine and doeth them, I will liken him unto a wise man which built his house upon a rock. And the rain descended, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat upon that house, and it fell not, for it was founded upon a rock. And every one that heareth these sayings of mine and is unwilling to do them shall be likened unto a foolish man which built his house upon the sand. And the rains descended, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat upon that house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. And it came to pass when Jesus ended these sayings, the people were astonished, as they would be today if they would listen. They were astonished at his doctrine, for he taught them as one having authority and not as one of the scribes. Let me make a statement here. There are three things that are spoken of here in conclusion to the Sermon on the Mount in these last three verses. Matthew 7, 24 through 27. Three things. One is being faithful. Secondly, is being wise. 
And thirdly is being tested. They're all a part of your life. Being faithful. What is meant in simple terms in the illustration he gave, who is a faithful man? There are two, there are two houses built here, right? One house was built upon sand because it was easier, required less effort, and wouldn't cost you near as much. You can have more time to do what you want to do. Another house was more costly to build because it was built up on a rock. Now, the difference in these two people, one was a faithful man, one was a foolish man. One was wise and one was foolish. The faithful man is the man who, who dug in, heard what God said, and was willing to do it. But being wise, he knew that this house, when it's built, is going to come under attack by the weather. And if it's not founded well, if, if it's not grounded well, there's a good chance that all I have done in the end will be ruined and I'll lose everything. I thought I had something nice. Look what I've done. And then it falls because it wouldn't stand against the elements of time, testings and so forth. So that means three things. One, we must be faithful. Two, we must be wise. And three, we must be tested and we must pass our test. Now, take faithfulness first. This is, this is what this whole thing is about. One time Jesus was preaching. He was uh, in Luke 11. You don't have to turn there. And somebody, a, 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 must have been a Catholic lady, said to him, Blessed is the womb that bore thee and the breast at which thou hast nursed. And Jesus said, Yea, rather. This is what Jesus said in response to glorifying his mother. He said, yea, rather. Blessed are they that hear the word of God and keep it. That's Luke 11 and verse 28. Turn to Romans 2. Blessed are they that hear the word of God and keep it. Now, in Romans chapter 2, let me read verse 13, or you follow me in verse 13. For not the hearers of the law are just before God, but the doers of the law shall be just. You understand that? Again, we have one of two. There's only two. It's an either-or situation all through the Bible. Either or, no middle ground. He said, it's not the hearers of the law that are just. They're the ones that accumulate a lot of knowledge. They're usually pretty good preachers and a lot of facts and information and uh, could answer Bible quizzes and do Bible crossword puzzles. But Jesus never said that'll get you to heaven. Whatever a man knows, if God gave him knowledge, it must be translated into action. Doers. But somewhere in the Bible, it still says, be ye doers of the word and not hearers only. Maybe we'll get to that in a minute. But he said, it's not the hearers of the law that are right with God. But he said, but the doers of the law shall be justified. Now, how do the just live? If a man is made right with God, because God drew him out of darkness, brought him to him, and put his life inside of that person, when God does that and a man is born again, has God made that man right with him? We call that justified or being made right with God. God did something brought you to him, not only brought you to him, but as the psalmist said, he plants you in his courts and he begins to relate to you as his child. And he's going to teach you his way. Teach me uh, thy way, O Lord, that I may walk in thy truth. Isn't that what the new birth is supposed to do? Ezekiel 11. and verse 19, well, back to what I just said about justified. And he said, and I will give them one heart and I will put a new spirit within you and I will take out of you, out of their heart, the heart of flesh, and I'll give them a new heart of flesh. Verse 20, why? He said, I will give them a new heart and a new spirit so that they may 
walk in my statutes and keep my ordinances and do them. And in this way, they shall be my people and I will be their God. Isn't that what John 10 says? My people hear my voice and they what? They follow me. So the Sermon on the Mount concludes with this one major point. If any man hears my words and does them, it's a choice you have to make. If you're willing and you live this way, this God says, while you may not look like it or always sound like it or through the struggles you'll have, it may not appear like this is going to work. But he said, this man in my sight is a wise man. He not only counted the cost of how much labor, extra labor he's going to put into it than the guy building on sand, but he realizes that he can't get the house built right unless he gets it on the right foundation. That's, why the, that's where the wisdom comes in. All, of, all faithful people are wise people in the eyes of God. Think of it. If you don't live God's way, how do you live? You live in death. And if you don't want to live God's way, when you die, what happens? You perish. Now, any man that knows that and is unwilling to do that is foolish. If a man really likes smoking, trying to quit, but somehow by revelation, a voice spoke out of it, said the next puff of that cigarette you take is terminal lung cancer. Now, I know it doesn't work like that. I don't think it does. But if it was going to be like that, the next puff you die, slow and ugly, would you take a puff? No, you wouldn't do that. Why? Because wisdom would dictate there's something more important while I'm living in this world than me enjoying a smoke. If it's going to kill me, I'm crazy to keep doing it. If I'm smart at all, if I've only got a little bit of smarts, but I draw back from doing that because I'd rather live and not die, then that's wisdom. Listen, we live one time in this life, one brief time, like a vapor smoke, it's gone. One life we live in this world. You're only young once. You're only middle-aged once. You're only old once. But you can die twice. You can die twice. You die once, you die, you're born again. You die once, you live again. You only live once and you die forever. You give your life up to Jesus, you live forever, don't you? You die to self and so forth. Well, you think of it. All the things that God has promised and all the things that he has said, it comes down to this. I will bless you. I will keep you, protect you, the wonderful things we love to hear sermons about. But I require from you your total allegiance. And you're going to find that everything in human nature resists God. It's against God. Therefore, you must take up a cross daily and crucify your flesh because your flesh is the only thing the devil has to lure you away from God. It's the only thing he can use is your flesh. You crucify it, he doesn't have anything left. Remember James chapter 1? Let me read this. James chapter 1, he says, Be ye therefore doers of the word and not hearers only. For if any man be a hearer of the word, and not a doer of the word. The Bible says he deceives himself. He deceiveth himself. And then he says, but whoso looketh into this perfect law of liberty and continues therein, he being not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work, this man will be blessed. Would you like that? Well, wisdom would dictate then that whatever price you have to pay, do this because this is the one condition God said you'd be blessed. So that's the way it should work. To be a doer of the word and not a hearer only. Because if a man is only a hearer of the word, but he's not a doer, the Bible said he deceives himself. Deceives himself. That real long Greek word, which means to draw false conclusions. He reasons with himself in light of human nature. He reasons himself out of God's way, convinces himself that his way is better than God's way, sets God aside to do it this other way where so many people are, and he qualifies for that form of God in this thing. 
He qualifies for he doesn't know what to do good, but he doesn't want to do it. it. To him, it's sin. That's the way the Sermon on the Mount ends. I think this is the solemnity of the message. I really do. That God's speaking to ordinary people who can receive this word. He says, you have to, you have to be faithful. You have to be loyal. You have to do things God's way. And you have to be willing at least to come and hear the word before you make any big changes in your life. Don't just do things you dream up. Find out what the word says. Let me ask you a question in closing. Why is it that so many people don't want to hear the word? You can look around in any church on a weekday. If it's, if it's a teaching meeting, just instruction and teaching in the word, why is it, you tell me, don't tell me all at once, but why is it that people don't want to go hear that? Why do people complain about those who go to church with notebooks and paper and pencils and take notes like it's some school or something? What's the problem with being taught the truth? Is it we're afraid that everybody will be offended if the truth is too narrow? Maybe if we want our church to grow, we leave certain truths alone and let every man do that which is right in his own sight and leave that out. Well, a lot of people don't. But what is it? I'll tell you one reason people don't want to hear the word because they're not interested in it. Go back to Romans chapter 1 and verse 28. A man makes a choice here and then God makes a choice. Is, is, is that fair? If God brought us all in here tonight, you know, you came because maybe the Lord led you here tonight. If God speaks his word to you, do you not have an opportunity to heed it? Now, if something is said in a way or something was said that you don't want, now maybe I said it wrong. You don't have to believe that. But if you don't want to do it God's way because of the cost, listen to this. You made a decision, God makes one. Now, God doesn't do this every time you make a wrong decision, but there comes a time if you're unwilling, this happens. Verse 28, and even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a reprobate mind to do those things which are not fit or not proper. He does that. He gave them over to a reprobate mind to do those things which are not proper or not fit. Let me read this one. He said, then they shall call upon me and I will not answer. They shall seek me early, but they will not find me. Now, who would he be saying this to? This, this is somewhere in the Old Testament. Who would God ever say of people that one day comes, they will really search for me, but they won't find me. They'll call out after me, but I will not answer them. Why would God ever do that to people that were calling out? They were pleading at Noah's Ark for the door to open. They were pleading with God. The door never opened. Listen to this. Then shall they call upon me, but I will not answer. They shall seek me early, but they shall not find me. For that they hated knowledge and did not choose the fear of the Lord. Let me ask you a question now, because we're getting ready to go home. What kind of a premium does God put on his word and your relationship to it? See, your relationship, my relationship to God is no greater than my relationship to his word. For most people, God is a, somebody out there who doesn't speak. And so and when he doesn't speak, it doesn't bother them. And when I speak, that's just your opinion. But they don't, they don't have this ear for the Lord. But when he does speak to their hearts and they don't want to do it. And I'm telling you, folks, I've been doing this well more than half of my life now. Been a lot of places, known a lot of people, done a lot of things. I'm just saying that to make a point. There are lots and lots of church folks who really don't want to know any more about God than what they already know, and that's as far as they want to go. And this is what he said. Let me read you one, one more while I'm in Proverbs. Oops, I told you where I was. While I was in Proverbs, listen at, listen at this one in chapter 5. He said, and say how I have hated instruction, and my heart despised reproof. And have not obeyed the voice of my teachers, nor inclined mine ear to them that instructed me. 
I was almost in all evil in the midst of the congregation and the assembly. This is what he was saying in Proverbs chapter 5. How could there be misery to somebody that turned away from God? You never had to pray for God to help you to do that. You don't have to say, Father, in Jesus' name, help me to turn away from you. Help me to be vile, Lord. You know that you never pray for stuff like that? Everybody's prayer is something different than that because all these things are sin. You want to get away from that. Lord, help me be a bitter man. Lord, help me be an ugly husband. Help me to be mean to my kids. Lord, help me do this. Lord, help me to cuss better. I don't cuss good enough. I don't lose my temper bad enough. Ask, how many of you know we never pray like that because those things are sin? We know they're sin. What we pray for is because they're so offensive to God is that these things will be gone in our life. Oh, sin is a horrible thing. It's so easy to do. We're around it so much. You watch it on the TV constantly. The content of so many people's conversation is just full of sin. Morality has taken a vacation from men's lives. Things have turned away so much. Jesus said to his disciples once when he made a strong statement of John 6, he said, does what I say offend you? Are you offended of what I just said? He said, does this offend you? Are you put out by this? Jesus said to another man in the sower in the seed, he said, yet hath he not rooted in himself, but he endures for a while. But when tribulation or persecution arises because of the word, by and by he is offended. It's going to cost us something. That's where the being tested part comes in. Because you see, when you're wise, you, you're, you got to be faithful. You, you got to be wise. You count the cost. You're not running from God. You just want to make, make sure because you're a foolish man to just follow what everybody else is doing or follow the trends or the whims of the age and the time. God hasn't changed, and you know he never will change. If you're a wise man, you'll make everything conform in your life to what he said. Otherwise, you're being a fool because you know the judgment that's coming, and you did it anyway. That's not good. And finally, in closing, again, we're going to close again. We're going to be tested. Turn to Hebrews chapter 3. Y'all remember the verse in the Bible that says that Jesus, when in Matthew 24 and Luke, uh, Mark chapter 13, it says, He that endureth to the end, the same shall be saved. I hope all of you know this, that if you say you believe something, you're going to be tested. If you believe you're a Christian, you'll find out. All it'll take is one party, one engagement, one opportunity, and you'll find out just how committed you are to God. I've been there. I passed those tests a long time ago. But you'll find out. You'll be offered a drink, a cigarette, a porno picture or something around the good old boys and the good old girls, and somebody will tell you a nasty joke. You'll be tested. You'll find out where your heart really is. If it's only in a meeting at church or if it's out there where you live, you'll find out. But you will be tested. The storms of life will blow against what you think God has built in your life. You'll find out. You'll really find out. Now, in Hebrews chapter 3 and verse 16, there's two words, if. The words, if. Now, if means... This is the way it is if. Remember in Hebrews, you don't have to turn to it, but remember in Hebrews 12, he says, uh, uh, if, if you endure chastening, then you're the sons of God. And you remember that? If. If you endure chastening, God's going to chasten you or test you. If you endure, you're his children. If you don't, well, you don't endure chastening, then you're, you're not his. God's people won't give up and quit. But in chapter 3 of Hebrews, in closing... In chapter 3, verse 6. But Christ as a son over his own house, whose house we are, if, y'all see the word if? If you draw a little circle around if, you'll see it again when you open to that. If we hold fast the confidence and the rejoicing of the hope firm unto the end. Hope means expectation, what you're looking forward to. 
you rejoice because it is so good for that to happen in your life. It hadn't happened yet, but I'm expecting it to happen. I am confident that it's going to happen. Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. And he says, if you hold fast that confidence of hope and rejoice about it. And then in another verse in the same chapter here, verse 14. For we are made partakers of Christ if we listen to Brother Hamilton. Listen, hey, it doesn't say that. It really doesn't say that. For we are made partakers of Christ if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast unto the end. It's up to you. Bow your head. Amen. Father, in Jesus' name, we ask you to bless your word to our hearts. Make us to remember what you've said. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the content. Thank you for the truth. Thank you for the new heart you give us. Thank you for blessing us. Ask you to bless this word to your people and this Sermon on the Mount to your people. I ask you to do it in Jesus' name. Amen.